0: If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans this morning. We are continuing through this study of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, and we are looking this morning, finishing this morning, the uh, 12th chapter, looking at, at verses 14 through 21 this morning. I want to, to read these verses to you, uh, and then as we do every, every Sunday, we will pray and ask God to help us as we come to his word. Uh, but this morning, I also, during this time of prayer, want to come and pray together as a church for Israel. Um, regardless of how we view the, the political dynamics and the things that are taking place, regardless of how we interpret among the, the, the scriptures what the nation of Israel is or isn't, the reality is, is that the nation of Israel is hurting this morning. And not just the nation of Israel, but Palestinians are hurting. There are people in the Middle East that are grieving and, and grieving horrible, horrible tragedies. And so as a church, I believe that we should and have a have a call of God to come and to pray for our worldly leaders and pray that situations like this come to a quick and decisive end and that peace be restored. And so I want to I want to do that this morning and, and pray together with you for just that. So, I'm going to read and then we will pray together for this. So look with me at Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. Paul writes, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, we we come once again this morning to your word, and to your throne, and we come seeking help and guidance. Help us to see your word for what it is, to know it, to understand it, to believe it. But more than that, to live in light of it. Help us not to be like the man that James describes, who looks into the mirror and as soon as he walks away, soon forgets what he looks like. But Father, this morning, as we look into the mirror of your word, seeing ourselves for who we are, seeing you for who you are and all that you have done. Help us not to forget what it is we see here and to live in light of these truths, in light of these commands. Help us to live in obedience. But Father, this morning, as we come before your throne, we also come on behalf of the people of Israel. The people of the Old Testament, your people of the Old Testament. And God, we pray for for those that are hurting this morning, for those that are grieving, for those that are missing, for those that are suffering. We pray for peace, for comfort. We pray for restoration. We pray that this war and this violent and hostile situation would come to a quick end, even this morning. That you would bring an end to the fighting and an end to the death and an end to the the tragedies. And God, while we pray for those that are hurting and we pray for the nation of Israel this morning, we also pray that by your sovereign will and by your inscrutable ways, that you would somehow use even this situation to bring the people of Israel to saving faith in Jesus. Save them, Father. We pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. From the beginning, the church all around the world has found itself at odds with the rest of the world and at odds is sort of an interesting phrase. It's, it's kind of a nice way of putting it, because if we're honest, the church for, for the, from the time of its first existence has not just found itself at odds with the church, but has found itself almost at war with the rest of the world. And we can look back at the early church where we see Christians were hated by Jews because of their teachings on Jesus. Christians were then persecuted by the Roman Empire, often in in cruel and horrible ways because Christians claimed to serve a king who stood opposed to Caesar. You could fast forward into church history and go all the way into the Dark Ages. And as the, the church grew and began to cover most of the known world, for the large part, the church drifted into error. And those that sought to correct these errors and to bring the church back into line with biblical truth, they were hated by the institutional leaders for teaching truth that went against their long-held traditions. Fast forward again into colonial times and even the founding of, of this nation in which we live. The pilgrims, the reason the first pilgrims sailed to this country was because their home country had turned against them. For their religious beliefs and they they hated these Christians for not submitting to the king of England. And then again today. The relationship that we as the church have with the world around us is is really much of the same as it's always been. The world requires adherence to any and every wave of teaching that is espoused by a culture that is that is at odds with scripture. And if we don't adhere, if we don't affirm what they believe and claim to be true, then we are punished in various ways. Here in our country, that punishment is is really just nothing more than being outcast or looked down upon. Church membership drops. People stop giving to the church and churches begin closing doors because they lack the, the manpower, the bodies, the resources to remain open. In other parts of the world, the church By not adhering to the the cultural norms of the the society in which they live, the church is continuously persecuted with imprisonment and loss of civil rights, loss of property, loss of finances, and ultimately, in some cases, loss of death, loss of life. And as we keep all of this in one hand, we must also hold in the other hand this the fact that we have a mission given to us by Christ. To go out and make disciples of the world that hates us. And so the question then becomes for us as the church is, how do we reach a world that stands opposed to us? And how do we love a world that is so filled with hatred towards the church and towards everything that the church believes? Some churches have decided that the only way to reach this world is to to change some of what they deem to be smaller doctrines so that the church will be less offensive, less grating and more inviting. All in the hopes that by doing this, by changing biblical truth, we can better love this world. But is this what we are called to do? Is this what God calls us to do, to to leave some of the teachings of Scripture in the name of loving the world? No, I, I don't believe it is, and I don't believe that any of you believe it is either. And yet still we find the question remains, how do we love the world and still maintain the teachings of Christ? Well, thankfully, the Bible provides us with the answers to that question. Because you see, that's what Romans 12 and the passage that I just read. That's what this passage is about. How do we as the church love a world that hates us? Last week, we we looked at seven ways that we are called to love the church. And we we looked at this from verses nine through 13, as Paul tells us these these different things for us to do and how we love one another genuinely of hating what is evil, holding fast to what is good. And we we looked at all of that last week. But this morning. Paul gives us more commands. He's continuing this rapid fire call to obedience. One command after another, imperative after imperative after imperative. But these commands, there's a there's a a switch, a shift that takes place at verse 14. And the theme that binds verse 14 all the way down to 21 is not how do we love the church, but it's how do we love the world? It teaches us how to love a world that hates us, how to love a world that stands opposed to us. In short, this explains and expounds Jesus's own words to his disciples. Love your enemies. How do we do that, Jesus? And Paul tells us. And so that's what I hope to learn with you this morning. And not just learn how we do it, but then to leave here this morning and put these things into practice. So I, as I see it, I believe there are three ways that we as Christians and as the church are commanded to love the world from Romans 12:14 through 21. Number one: we love by sharing. We love by sharing. This may, it may seem like an overly simplistic way to, to start out this discussion, but I think it's one of the first areas that Paul covers here in this section. Sharing is something that we teach every child as they grow up, and it's something that every child hates learning. No one likes sharing their toys, but it's something that we have to teach our children from a young age because sharing matters. But Paul's not talking about sharing toys or sharing possessions. He's talking about sharing emotions, sharing joys, sharing burdens, sharing life together. Look at verses 15 and 16. This is what Paul says. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. He, he continues a, a sentence later. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. See, first Paul says to rejoice with those who rejoice. And this is what I was talking with the children about. It's straight to the point. If someone else has something to celebrate, then you should celebrate with them. It's a good thing. They get a new job or a new promotion. They have the birth of a child or a grandchild. I mean, even when someone just has a really good day, we should celebrate with the people who are celebrating. It's a good thing. Rejoice with them. Celebrate the highs. Celebrate the blessings that God has provided because he makes the rain fall on both the just and the unjust alike. And we as Christians can celebrate the good blessings with the world. And then Paul flips the coin over and he says, not only should you rejoice with those who rejoice, but you should weep with those who weep. If someone is mourning, if someone has reason to cry, then you, Christians, should cry with them. Be saddened for them, be saddened with them, hurt for them and hurt with them. And just as we know the hand that blesses us, we know where the the provision comes. We also know the reason that there are so many reasons to weep in this world. That sin has broken everything. And even though we know that in Christ all will be set right one day, we still have reasons to be sad today. Justifiable reasons to weep. And so do the people around us. And so we can and we we must empathize with the world. When they rejoice, we should rejoice. When they weep, we should weep with them. Alongside of them. Sharing with them. But as I was reading over this this week, I I came to a question, sort of asked myself this question. I want to ask it to you as well. Which of these two things do you find to be more difficult? Rejoicing with those who rejoice or weeping with those who weep? You see, for me, I, I don't think I'm alone in this, but for me, weeping with those who weep is the far easier task. It's easier to hurt when someone is hurting. It is much more difficult to celebrate when someone else is celebrating. I mean, when, when someone is weeping, when, when some if something terrible happens to someone that we know something tragic enough to break them and to, to make them weep, then our hearts almost instinctively hurt with them. We, we want to, to feel that close connection. We want to, to come alongside them. We don't just leave them standing out in the rain alone. We go to them and we hurt with them. And I'm not saying it's always like this. I'm sure there are times where there's a a callousness that, that comes over us and over our hearts toward the suffering of others. But but don't you find that when you see someone else in pain, when you see someone else in grief and in despair and in tears, that it's easier to empathize with them in their hurt than it is to empathize with others in their rejoicing. How hard is it to rejoice with someone we don't even know? How hard is it to rejoice with someone we do know? I mean, here's here's why. I mean, imagine a coworker. It's similar to what we talked about with the children. Imagine a coworker who comes running up to you as you walk into the office first thing tomorrow morning, and she's so excited to see you, to tell you her big news, and she comes running up to you and says, I, I just got the promotion, I can't believe it. I start the new job tomorrow. And you say your congratulations and you keep walking towards your desk. But that's when the thoughts begin turning. Wait a minute. I could have gone for that promotion. I mean, I'm I'm a much better worker than she is. I do my job much better than than anything that she puts out. I'm a harder worker. I'm here more. I'm more committed. I'm more devoted. I get along better with my coworkers. Why did she get it and I didn't? And before we know it, we are instead of rejoicing with this woman, this coworker who's rejoicing, we find ourselves becoming bitter and frustrated that they get something that we believe we should have, come, we should have gotten. And see, that's why I think this, this, this command is so difficult. It's easy for us to understand. Rejoice with those who rejoice. But the reality is our hearts are too selfish and prideful and arrogant to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Weeping with those who weep requires us to hurt with people. And for the most part, that's easy. It's almost natural, depending on the hurt. But rejoicing with those who rejoice requires effort. It requires us to let go of our pride, to let go of our selfish desires in order to celebrate the joys that other people have received, even if it means I didn't get it. And I think that's why Paul follows up these commands with another one. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. This is a command to, to let go of our pride. Because if we are to rejoice with those who rejoice, this requires that we humble ourselves before other people. Haughty people are those people that look, look at the world down the end of their nose thinking that they are above anyone and everyone else around them. They deserve everything. They only rejoice when the blessing comes to them. And they certainly don't rejoice when someone else receives what they believe they deserved. And rather than being haughty, rather than being arrogant and prideful, Paul says that we are to associate with the lowly, to be friends with the people that the rest of the world seem to forget. And this is a call both in Paul's day and our own. This is a call to a countercultural love that has baffled the world for centuries. There are countless examples of this through church history, but let me just give you one. You can go back in time to to the 1300s. And the bubonic plague is is spread all over Europe. A, A third of the world's population has died. And it's an ugly and terrible situation. That over the span of about three or four years, uh, 75 to 200 million people drop dead. And then they drop dead from a sickness that is spreading like wildfire, a sickness that even after someone dies, they are still contagious. And so what happens in this culture and in this European society is that if you even get the slightest whiff of being sick, you are immediately kicked out of your home. It does not matter your age. It does not matter your lifestyle. You could be three years old or you could be 93 years old. If you get sick, you're out and you're on your own. If you become sick and then ultimately start to die, no one is going to come and touch your body because they themselves might get sick from you. And so now you have not only been abandoned by your family and your closest loved ones, no one has the decency to even honor you by burying you. This is a world of anarchy and unimaginable sadness and chaos. And enter the church, enter Christians who then come to the sick and the dying at great risk to themselves. Healthy believers going up to the sick and to the dying and to the dead and saying, we will help. We will care because you are worth it. Coming to, to children, coming to the elderly who are sick and dying on their deathbeds, knowing there's no cure, there's nothing I can do to heal you. But what I can do is just care for you in your last moments. I can sit here and I can hold your disease ridden hand while you take your last breath. And they did. And this is what, the, what marked the church of the 1300s was a love for the people that the world deemed unworthy of their love. They associated with the lowly. And I get that this might be an extreme version of of this type of association with the lowly. But that's exactly what Paul is talking about. Do not be haughty, but get down on your hands and knees and serve the people that the world deems unlovable. Love those that the world has forgotten. Love those the world has cast aside. And it all comes down to pride. It comes down to how we view ourselves and how we view others. You cannot rejoice with those who are rejoicing if you see yourselves as better and more deserving of what someone else received. You cannot weep with those who weep if you distance yourselves from the problems of others. And you cannot associate with the lowly if you think yourselves better than them. And one of the most powerful ways for us as Christians, it to, one of the most powerful ways that we can love the world is by letting go of our pride and loving others by sharing in their burdens and in their joys. And we must remember that each and every human being is worthy of our love because each and every human being bears the image of God that you and I bear. And if they share that with us, then we can share life with them. Casting aside anything and everything that would divide us. Or separate us from others. We must share joys. We must share sorrows. We do not separate from the world. But we love them by living in the same world with them. Love the world by sharing life with the world. And the beauty of that statement is that by God's grace. As you and I learn to share life. And to share in life with each other. And with the rest of the world around us. Through that. By his grace, we will be able to share with them true and everlasting life found only in the person of Jesus. The one who entered into their into our burden filled world, who wept with those who were weeping, who rejoiced with those who were rejoicing and who conquered every enemy on our behalf. And so, Christian, let us love the world by sharing with the world this life. Share life with the world. Number two, we love through peace. We love the world through peace. Paul moves from from sharing life to living a peaceful life and as a way that we can love the world around us. He says in verse 16 that we are to live in harmony with one another. And then in verse 18, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, peace is a, a term that we often hear a lot about. We want peace. We all want peace. We're tired of division. We're tired of, of fighting and bickering and this whole back and forth that seems to dominate so much of our world. I don't know of anyone who's hoping for another fight tomorrow. We want peace. And so let's, let's break down this idea of peaceful living as, as Paul describes it. He's, first, he says that we are to live in harmony with one another. The idea here is this is that we have there's a unity of thinking, a unity of of mindset. And I'm no music expert by any means. I had to ask my wife to to make sure that I was on point here. Uh, But I do find significance in the term that Paul uses harmony. I mean, think about it, whether it's in music or in life, you cannot have harmony if there's only one note. If there is one single note that drives everything, that's not harmony. If everyone sounds the exact same, acts the same, looks the same, is identical in every respect, that's not harmony. Harmony is two or more notes, two different notes coming together to make something special, something pleasing, something beautiful. And so for us as the church, loving through peaceful living means understanding that most of the world thinks differently than we do on a lot of different topics. They act differently. They live differently. They believe differently. And often those beliefs and those worldviews and those lifestyles stand opposed to what the scriptures teach. But there is a path of harmony. I'm not saying we embrace harmony. What they embrace and we say that it's fine for them to do this and fine for them to think this and fine for them to act this and fine for them to say this. That is not what harmony means. What Paul is calling on us to do is not to go out seeking to stir up conflict just because they're different or just because we're different. I'm not saying as some pastors are saying that we must draw circles instead of drawing lines. What I am saying is that we don't have to draw lines in the sand on every single topic and then divide the world in two. What I am saying is that we as Christians should not separate ourselves from the rest of the world simply because they believe differently than we do and they act differently than we do. The New Testament does not call on us as Christians to isolate ourselves and to become monks who live in monasteries far removed from the rest of the world. It's not biblical. It's a failure in every respect. The reality is that we are called to make disciples of all nations. And how can we expect to make disciples of the nations if we are not part of the nations? If we are not in and among the nations, if we are not having relationships with people, if all we are known for is stirring up division, no one is ever going to be a part of these disciples. Paul says live in harmony. So, yes, understand the differences are there. Do not approve. Do not call good what God calls evil and do not call evil good. That's not what this is teaching. But what he is saying is, do not needlessly stir up conflict just for the sake of conflict. We can live peacefully and harmoniously with the world around us in Christ. Paul says again in 18, he says, live peaceably with all. It's more of the same Christian. You are called to love, to delight in peace and harmony and not to delight in arguments and divisions. And we can face it, our world has enough division without the church adding to it. There's wars, there's protests over these wars, there's political division, religious tension, disagreements, all of it contributing to a world that lives on the brink of fighting every single day. And as the people of God, as the people of Christ, we are called to be a people of peace. Is this not what Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. But this is this peaceful living is not something that we do on our own. We are peacemakers because we have been brought to peace with God through Christ. Because you see, we know what it's like to be on the opposing side. We know what it's like to be in division. And yet in Christ, we have been brought to peace. It's exactly what Paul has already taught us in Romans five. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And if we have this peace with God, then let us be known as a people of peace to the rest of the world. In the hopes that they likewise will desire peace and come to find the true source of peace in the true person of Jesus Christ. He himself is our peace. And I'm sure many of you are thinking as you're reading this passage with me, thinking at this point, saying, Pastor, you left out a very important part of that verse. And I did. And I'm going to touch on it here. I think it's funny how quickly our inner lawyers sort of come bursting out from our hearts when we read passages of commands in Scripture. I think if we're honest or we're. We we look at these commands and we see that they're either too difficult to obey or or we just don't want to obey them. And so we read this passage like lawyers reading a contract that's already been signed, but a contract that we have no intention of living up to. And so we're not reading it to figure out what we need to do. We're reading it to find loopholes of how we can get out of it. And so we read through this verse and we go, all right, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Okay, yeah, harmony with one another, haughty, lowly, got that. And then we get to this verse and we say, if possible, so far as it depends on you. And we say, aha, gotcha, Paul. Now it's simple. This isn't possible and it's not my fault. So I don't have to do any of this. Yes, Paul gives us an out. But it's not an excuse to justify our sin. It's an understanding of reality. Because in order to have peace, it takes both parties to agree to peace. And the reality of our broken world is that often peace is not possible. And that peace is broken many times by someone or something beyond our control. For example... In our country, in our culture, the church and the far left stands at, all, at odds with one another. Now, the church stands at odds with the far right, too, but that's a discussion for a different day. But for this, the, the, the left says you must support the killing of babies. You must support gender transitions. You must support unbiblical marriage and on and on and on that list goes. And to that, we as the church must say Babies in the womb are precious and should be protected. We we say that God has created each of us male and female and his creation is very good, not something to be changed or twisted into something else. We say marriage is between a man and a woman, for this is the way that God has ordained it. And marriage matters because marriage is a picture of the gospel. And on each of these points, the church must disagree with a culture that proclaims the opposite of what scripture teaches. We must not violate biblical truth all in the name of peace. But what I believe Paul is teaching us here is not to let go of some of these things that put us at odds, but to come to an understanding that disagreement does not have to mean conflict. We can disagree peaceably. Like we have just said, but the reality is the other side may not want that peace. And when that happens, peace cannot be found. It takes both sides to live at peace. And so there are times when peace is not an option, but it must never be because we are the ones who refuse it. So the final question then is, what do we do? Not only when the world rejects our peace, but then turns and openly attacks the church. How do we respond when we are treated unfairly, unjustly, and undeservingly? Maybe the better way to think through it is how do we love when we have been wronged? And it's quite clear that the passage ends with this last way that we are to love the world. It's number three: we, we love without revenge. We love without revenge. Paul says, verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for he says, or for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance for for so many of us, vengeance feels natural. It feels right. I mean, I can have I can point to any number of the conversations that I overhear in my house on a daily basis. He hit me, so I hit him back. (coughs) You break my stuff, I break your stuff. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It's often how it happens in the cave household. And yet, Paul says with the utmost clarity here, never avenge yourselves. There's no loophole in this one. Never avenge yourselves. Never. As in, there's never a good reason. There's never a good time. There's never a personal injustice so wrong that you are called to fix it and make it right. Never. Should we seek justice when injustice is done to us? Yes. And God has provided a sword for justice to be done, but he never gave that sword to you. That sword for justice does not rest in the church's hands. He gave it to the government. He gave it to the state. And we'll talk more about this next week. But for now, you and I need to understand that the sword of justice and the sword of vengeance does not rest and never will rest in the hands of the church. Ultimately, vengeance and justice will come at the hands of God and God alone. And we can track Paul's argument. I want you to track this with me. Because this is what Paul is teaching us. He's saying, believers, when we know that God will enact justice one day and when we know that vengeance belongs to God. Then we as believers are liberated from taking justice into our own hands and we are free then to do good because we know that in the end, God will make all the wrongs right. And this freedom then enables us to do good to our enemies and even pray that God would lead them and bring them to repentance. Because that's what Paul says next. He says, never avenge yourselves. But on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And then he says, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. That imagery of of burning coals being heaped, I've always found pretty graphic. It's such a picture, isn't it? But I'll be honest, I struggled some this week coming to an understanding of what Paul is actually saying will happen here when we do good to our enemies. Because on the one hand, you could read this as a sort of kill them with kindness. That if you love your enemies well and you, you you serve them, even when they hate you, that eventually it will soften their hearts and they will force them to consider what they're doing. And and maybe it's not as right as they think it is. And so we will kill them with kindness. But on the other hand, I think when we read the rest of scripture, we can go to Proverbs 16, for example, and find this almost verbatim quoted from there. This imagery of heaping coals on heads is never used in any other way except in reference to the judgment and the wrath of God. And so we could read by, by that. That as we show kindness to our enemies. And, and as they continue in their mistreatment of us. They are proving themselves to be more and more worthy of the wrath of God waiting for them. So which one does this phrase refer to? Killing with kindness or the wrath of God is coming. And honestly, I think it's a both and and not an either or. Because that's the thing about fire. Fire both melts and hardens. By our kindness, God may melt their hearts and lead them to repentance. And for that, we should always pray. But by our kindness, God may use it to not melt their hearts, but to harden it. So they will find themselves being more and more deserving of the judgment that's coming for them. But either way, the calling for us as the church and as Christians remains the same. Love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them, Paul says. And ultimately, again, coming back to Christ, as it always does. We can love our enemies because we were once enemies who were loved. You notice how Paul begins verse 19. He begins this command by referring to the church with a title, with a name. He calls them beloved. You see, the only way that we can let go of this need for vengeance, the only way that we can truly love our enemies is when we remember who we once were, enemies of God, and who we now are in Christ, God's beloved. And so we love the church. We love the world by avoiding vengeance, by leaving it in the hands of God and simply loving our enemies. The relationship between the church and the world has never really been a healthy relationship, has it? And it really hasn't changed today. But even though even though the world may hate us, you and I, as people of the book, as people of the cross, As Christians, we are called to something more. We are called to love those that hate us, to share in the burdens and joys, to share in the sufferings and sorrows. We are called to associate with the lowly, to avoid arrogance and pride, and to value each and every person as one who bears the image of God. We are called to live at peace and in harmony with the world. But we are also called to do this knowing that This is not always possible in every situation, but where it is possible, we should pursue it. We should pursue peace, but never at the expense of truth. And we must never repay evil for evil, never seek vengeance, but always bless and love our enemies, feeding them when they're hungry, giving them something to drink when they thirst. And in all of this we do, because this is what Christ has done for you. You were once his enemy. You once hated his rule. You refused to obey him. And he loved you. Despite it all. You were beneath him. You were a creature of dust. He the king of glory. And yet he associated with the lowly. And did not consider his equality with God a thing to be held on to. He was not haughty. But he came to us. You were once hostile towards him. An enemy of God. And yet he brought you peace. And though you and I were not physically there on that day, we were as much responsible for it as any Roman soldier or Jew crying out in that in that spot. We hung him on a cross. To die. And though he had the power and the authority and the legal standing to call down legions of angels to put an end to it all. He didn't. He stayed on the cross so that you and I may no longer be called his enemies, but that we may be called his friends, his brothers, his sisters. And so, Christian, as a friend of Christ, as a brother, as a sister of Christ, he calls you not to be overcome by evil and repaying evil with evil. But he says for you to overcome evil with good. Is there a truer example of this than the cross of Christ? Christian, no matter your feelings or your animosities towards the outside world, you are called to love them. So go and love them. Love them with the love of Christ and love them well. Pray with me. Father, we cannot obey without your grace. We cannot we cannot do any of this without your spirit moving in us and transforming us and renewing us. So, spirit, do your work, transform us, renew us and make us like Christ. Father, forgive us for all the times that we have sought vengeance and all the times that we have failed to live in obedience to your word. Teach us to repent of these things and teach us what it means to. To love the world as you have called us to do. Give us wisdom. Father to know how to how to draw lines. Where lines need to be drawn. But how to avoid disagreement and, and division. How to avoid conflict. For all of this takes wisdom. And we are not wise on our own. So Father give us wisdom. Teach us discernment. Give us peace. Help us to love. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.